Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, with Dr. John Modern, the author, the Arthur and Catherine Shadick Professor of Religious Studies and producer of Machines in Between, a collaboration between artists, scholars, scientists about our increased entanglement with machines. And uh, also the author of Neuromatic, which is the book we're going to talk about today, A Particular History of Religion and the Brain. Dr. Modern, thank you so much for coming on today. Ah, thank you, PJ. I'm very happy to be here. It's nice to meet you. And hello, everybody out there in the, I don't know, the virtual world. Well, you're not virtual. You're listening. You're real right now, listening. <laughs> you're not virtual. You're virtual to me, though. Yes. Um, which is, I, I, you know, that's an interesting take right from the start. But before we get too far into the weeds, um, tell me, uh, why neuromatic? Why this area of study for you? Okay, well, thank you. Um, well, you know, I, uh, I spend my, my day job as a professor of religious studies. I've, I've sort of studied religion. You know, I sort of got into it as an undergraduate, majored in religion. I got a master's in comparative religion, PhD in religious studies, professor of American religious history. Um, and I think in the past 10 or 12 years, I've begun to sort of reorient a little bit of my, my focus toward I guess, the contemporary technological scene and, and try to think about what, what does that history look like? Because I think in a lot of ways, the, the current moment that we are in strikes me as a situation that is ripe for um, a, a certain kind of applied conversation that I have learned as a student of religion, you know, thinking about people like Durkheim or Freud or Du Bois or James or, you know, these sort of classic theorists who, who I find myself in conversation with. Um, my goal has been, I think, to sort of bring that conversation to the contemporary moment where, you know, I, it's hard to describe. I mean, I think part of its indescribable intensity and accelerating pace has really sort of struck me as something that, you know, a kind of basic sociological or even a sort of basic sort of philosophical sort of uh, precise analysis of the contemporary condition. Although I like those, I thought it would be a little bit more fun to sort of think about um, you know, how, how might religion be thought through this technological moment? And so uh, the, my, my last book, Neuromatic, uh, Particular History of Religion in the Brain, is a history of one of, I think, the major nodes of our contemporary moment, which is uh, the investment in the brain as both a kind of um, epistemological horizon of what we can know about ourselves and the world and the universe. Um, and it's also become, in terms of popular culture, a way, I think, where, you know, not just scientists or, or people who are interested in, in, in the neuroscience um, um, aspect are beginning to sort of adopt certain kinds of models of personhood or subjectivity that I think are very much um, derived from the history that I tried to tell, which is a sort of uh, 300-year genealogy um, of the contemporary neuroscience and cognitive science of religion. So that's kind of where I'm at. It's sort of derived from my last book, which was called Secularism in Antebellum America, in which I spend about probably 30, 40 pages thinking through the invention of uh, the faculty of spirituality um, among phrenologists in the mid-19th century. And seeing that as a real kind of major moment um, in the kind of prehistory of our current sort of fascination and obsession uh, with the brain and its secrets. Yeah, I, I, even as you were talking there about this this history um, of neuroscience, uh, immediately it made me think I, I had an interview with uh, uh, Paul Craddock on um, the history of transplant surgeries. And mm -hmm. I was stunned to find uh, how much of our medical ethics that we take for granted, how young they were. Mm. Uh, like, 
permission for body parts is like that I kind of body bodily autonomy while not in, you know, maybe an older idea has not really been implemented in medicine, like until like 50, 70 years ago. And yeah. that, um, and even today, like in, uh, other parts of the world, like not always uh, followed through on. And so, um, when you talk about the history of neuroscience, one of the things that, you know, I'm looking through the book, you're talking about um, electroshock therapy and the kind of the history there. Um, our image of neuroscience can often be one of uh, authority, of uh, stability and safety and, and very ethical. And that is not, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into a tangle with neuroscientists today, but the history of it is undeniably not that. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think that's one of, you know, in a sense, and so, like, you know, to step back, like, my book is not arguing with neuroscientists and cognitive scientists at the level of their sort of measurements um, of, of, of blood flow in the brain through an MRI or, you know, taking them to task for sort of mismeasuring some electrical wave or something like that, or, you know, I'm not a trained neuroscientist, but I am an historian, and I think I'm a pretty good one, and, uh, you know, my constant question is for for, you know, my students, uh, for my colleagues to, you know, it's my bias, but I think we would all be a little better off if we thought a little more historically, which for me is a, you know, a kind of Foucauldian project. It's not simply going to the archive and finding the things that sort of prove an argument that you want to say something happened in the past. You know, I'm one of those sort of weird historians, you know, where the historians don't even recognize me as a historian, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that guy's a theorist, right? But you know, I, I, I'm deeply enmeshed in all manner of archives. I am an obsessed collector, an obsessed archivist, um, where I really do, you know, kind of think about the question a lot about what are the conditions of possibility that allows my line of inquiry, that makes my question make sense to me and those around me, right? And, you know, it's just that basic kind of, you know, sort of a, a kind of a, a reflective uh, sort of approach to uh, the kind of epistemological conditions, right? Which is a Foucauldian project, right? And and so I've I've been thinking through that and neuromatic in my previous book as well to try to think about like what, why, what is our common sense? What is our common sense about religion? What is our common sense about the brain? Um, what is the common sense about who we are as humans and our potential? And uh, I, I I'm very interested in sort of illuminating a, a, a kind of you know a, a long genealogy of that. Right, not to sort of negate it or challenge it, but to sort of hopefully supplement it. And where, you know, I think in my in my larger claim to the neurosciences and cognitive science, while although I'm really skeptical, particularly of that kind of science being applied to something like religion or religious cognition, or you know, some people call spiritual cognition or something like that, I, I think it would behoove all of us, particularly the scientists, to sort of take into account what I call the ecological confound of history and culture, right? The way in which history and culture do make their way in, um, not in, only into your sort of scientific notion of objectivity, but perhaps into your laboratory as well. And just like some dust or some dirt or high humidity in the laboratory might mess up your experimental design, um, there's something about the way in which language, right? Um, you know, mediates us. Yes. Uh, absolutely. And it would, you know, not to escape it, but to sort of have a more subtle understanding of perhaps what the limits of one's inquiry can produce. Those projects that try to escape language, I think are, yeah, uh, there have been a few attempts, but they don't seem to work, right? So that's not the, not the goal, but the goal is to understand what's happening to us. Uh, apologies. Yeah. Was, have you, go ahead. Yeah. Have you ever read uh, Don DeLillo's uh, Great Jones Street? No, I have read Don DeLillo, though. So I'm familiar with the style. Yeah. Yeah, this is a deep cut from, I think it's like early 70s. It's about uh, a sort of rock and roll star sort of based on like kind of quasi Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, <laughs> who goes into a retreat. His name is Bucky Wonderlick. And the whole novel revolves around his desire to lose his language mm. right? and looking for this, this drug that he can take, which will basically erase all of his language and all that applies and be able to start from scratch. Um, anyway. There, there you the go. Attempt, yes. The attempt to escape. Yeah. Uh, is that you said Great Jones Street? Great Jones Street. Yeah. I plug that. It's a great. I get I get a dollar every time he sells a copy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was looking over here as you're and I, I was listening to what you're saying. 
I, I love how the detail of it. You start the with this prologue talking about the study you took part in, and I wanted to find it because I wanted to. I wanted to reference it. You, uh, you talked about how you were folded in as a part of the control group, um, and you became this anonymous. And you gave the you gave the actual number that you were assigned, and it was just such a, a great example of like how the language like. Well, if that, if you have a number and not a name, you know, then we have removed bias, right? Um, was that a, a big part of this, though? Taking part in that study was that a big part of your turn here? Yeah, the, actually, the book actually began um, in the early like 2012, 2013, when I was participating in this um, program called uh, "New Directions in the Study of Prayer." It was sponsored by the Social Science Research Council. And it was a bunch of people for a few years getting together talking about prayer and like 50 people and all these different kinds of disciplinary registers. And my project at that time was to think about prayer machines. And one of the things I was pitching for that project was to visit cognitive and neuroscientific labs and to sort of see how they're studying prayer. And sort of a long, you know, make a long story short, it sort of evolved a little bit. And um, some of the early, like, yeah, I, I, I participated in the, la uh, in the, the experiment that you you mentioned that sort of is the prologue of my book, which is um, a laboratory of uh, Dr. Patrick McNamara um, in Boston University, a, a leading voice in the neuroscience of religion. And I also participated, well, I didn't participate so much as observe um, in, um, in the University of Aarhus in, in Denmark um, at a place, a, kind of a multidisciplinary place called the Mind Lab that was up and running there for a number of years. Uh, I spent two summers sort of hanging out with some of the cognitive science there, talking to them and, and sort of trying to get a real take of like what's happening because the conceit as the book starts in the present, it starts with me in the MRI, right? Me thinking about the history of neuroscience and cognitive science in the MRI. And I have a picture of my brain to prove that I was thinking about all these things. And if you have the eyes to see, maybe you can sort of dissect and actually sort of see how and why I was thinking about religion, you know, religion and cognitive science. But these, in, these, these experiences, although I'm not a trained ethnographer, um, you know, I'm a historian and a writer, they were just amazing. I learned so much and they really, you know, kind of gave me, you know, a lot of appreciation of, of the, the power of their science um, and uh, the, the sort of, you know, the kind of reach that they were really, the sort of real epistemic desire to know things. And as a scholar of religion, you know, I go back 25 years, I've studied a lot of people who have a deep, intense desire to know something, to know something that is not obvious, that is not on the surface, that one needs to erect rituals and, and programs and, and, and communities by which one can begin to get into that space of knowing that, right? And so as a general level, when I was with the cognitive and neuroscientist, you know, I'm not, they're not, I mean, it's, it's a crass statement. Well, well, they're just like religion. That's not what I'm saying, nor I think is a very interesting point, but it's to sort of just see them as human beings who are living in this world, just like all the other human beings who have lived in this world, who are subject to the particularities of their culture, their moment, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, and to sort of figure out how they particularly are enacting um, through belief and practice, they're what you might, I call it a metaphysics, right? I think we all do kind of walk around with some first principles and some first assumptions that are indefensible, and that's fine, right? Um, but we should recognize them and to recognize those perhaps as biases and, and maybe double down on them if we believe in them, but to have more sort of meta conversations about how we walk around um, with these sort of you know, metaphysical assumptions that we're, we're carrying with us all the time. And I think that in, in many ways, when you're with this book, you, you talk about rejecting that first principle or, or that, that final aim, which is that, um, that communication happens in a purely statistical fashion. I think that's the, the quote, right? And so this, uh, you're, you're not rejecting their work, but you are maybe circumscribing it. Is that a fair way to talk about it? 
I think so. You know, and with a kind of cautionary, you know, I, I don't have any grand visions of the impact of my work. John Modern wrote a book that questions the sort of metaphysical assumptions <laughs> of the neuroscientific project or the neuromatic project. Oh, we're going we're gonna to stop and do something different now. I, I, I'm not sure about that. But the circumscription, I think, is a, a nice way because my hope really truly is to sort of produce better cognitive and neuroscientists of religion, right? These are the people who come to my conferences and say things, and, and I would like to be in conversation with them. And, um, you know, I've read a lot of their work, and I always sort of say, you know, maybe you might want to read some of mine, and maybe we can talk. <laughs> um, when you, uh, so can you define neuromatic for our audience, or, you know, at least in a, a rough yes. sense? Yeah, so my, my book is titled Neuromatic, um, which uh, is also, as I've found out since publishing, is the name of a band in England. Nice, <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, we kind of get our tweets mixed up and things like that. It's also, I found a, 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 a VHS tape from 19, or 1999 on a weight control VHS tape called Neuromatic <laughs> and Behavioral Control. So I'm not the first one. I thought I was sort of coming up with a new coin, coining a new term, but. Um, maybe not. Um, but the neuromatic basically kind of signifies, I think, which is at the heart of my genealogy, which is sort of in the mid-20th century. Um, I talk about a kind of, I call it a consequential integration of two uh, different sort of theoretical framings of, of reality in the human. One being in the form of information theory as it is developed by, by Claude Shannon in the 1930s and 1940s, you know, published very famously in a couple articles in uh, the Bell Laboratory Manual or Journal, I forget exactly what it's called, in the late 1940s. But already in the 1940s, people are aware, scientists are aware of this kind of development where, you know, an incredible sort of advance um, in, in mathematics uh, is happening there. And at the same time, we have the development um, of a kind of what we would might call just the basic paradigm of the brain as a neural network, um, as, as consisting of different kinds of neurons that are connected to each other in an all but infinite kind of uh, 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 sort of density. And so these two theories sort of, it's almost like chocolate and peanut butter in a lot of ways, although they are chocolate and peanut butter, both sweet treats, right? That that have sugar in them, and they have, but they come together in a way that, for me, just just looking at it, on one hand, um, really does sort of initiate and catalyze an incredible boom in neurophysiological research and development of different kinds of paradigms of thinking about the brain as a collection of neurons that are connected that process information. And with our new models, we can begin to understand not just the sort of form of the brain, we can begin to understand the processes of how the brain does its business. And, you know, you begin to see that take off in the 1940s and 1950s. And at the same time, these two theories are also, you know, at the foundation of what we would call the digital revolution, the advance of computer science, the building of some of the first computers in the 1940s, like people like John von Neumann, um, who are literally reading the same articles and thinking about building a machine. And the other people are reading the same articles thinking about, well, how do we study a brain, right? And you begin to sort of think about that moment. And then you think about the last 75 years, how the computers and our brain have, in a sense, at least I'll put understandings of computers and, uh, and our brain have, have basically kind of been in this kind of constant weird feedback loop, right? Building machines to recognize us as human beings based upon a neuromatic model and basically understanding our brains in light of the computers that we're building and are increasingly surrounding us, right? And going back to my prologue in, in, in the beginning of the book, in a lot of ways, that's a very claustrophobic chapter, right? The MRI is a claustrophobic space. Um, it's a space where you do feel uh, a certain kind of heteronomy. You're not necessarily in charge of what's happening, and you are awash with a, a certain kind of force of not just the magnetism, but culture and history. And there's something about that feedback loop between the brain and the computer, which I think is a kind of thread uh, that sort of courses through my entire book to the last page where I, I kind of uh, do... I do this moment where I 
I'm writing to the reader and I talk to the reader. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to shut my computer down, you know, and not to escape language or to escape neuromatic, but just to have a moment where maybe, 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 maybe there's just something said or something, a word that might just give you not an escape hatch, but at least some kind of frisson that would allow you perspective upon the kind of claustrophobic condition of discourse that I think that we are in. Um, there's a couple different places that that, um, uh, that I, I makes me want to go to. I had someone on for an interview who talked about the different models of the brain, and uh, I wish I could remember which interview it was, but when they talked about it, they talked about how when they first taught, uh, they introduced you know one model of the brain as software and hardware, and they would have to argue mm -hmm. to their students that that was a possible model. And 20 years later, she now has to argue that it's not the only possible model that like in those 20 years, like that understanding of the brain has become, uh, uh, and even you, you mentioned this when, when you say John von Neumann, is this, uh, the same kind of area as like, uh, the Turing test? I think it's Alan Turing, uh, or is he earlier? Mm -hmm. I think it's around the same time, right? When we're talking about yeah, Turing's 50, he, I mean, he's in the forties doing his, his, his work for code breaking, but, um, I think his machine intelligence is either 1950 or 1951, um, where he presents the Turing test as we call it. Um, yeah. Which would be a logical so, outworking you know, of this, this, like these two things connecting this chocolate and peanut butter as it were. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, we're stuck with, you know, obviously in the last few weeks or months, you know, particularly within circles of higher education, and there's been a certain kind of moral panic um, about the introduction of these chatbots that, you know, can represent and replicate student papers and coding and all this kind of notion. And, you know, the majority of <clears throat> ink that is being spilled, um, I think, is still very much, in a lot of ways, hasn't read, you know, Alan Turing, right? Um, you know, his, his big insight was like, you know, okay, what is the difference or what, what, you know, how do we know when a machine is intelligent, right? Um, well, I mean, he, he, it's a very subtle and sophisticated philosophical argument, but at the end of the day, he's like, well, if, it, if you kind of believe it's a human being and intelligent, well, then it is, right? <laughs> and there's something about that kind of moment where we're, I, I, you know, I kind of, I do sort of take this point um, very seriously, the idea that we can spend a lot of time trying to like demarcate the differences and distinguish between like, well, a machine does this and humans do this and try to try to figure out that kind of thing. But, you know, Turing was like, you know what, we are going to build our humanity into these machines and these machines will reflect our humanity back. Right. And so he, in a lot of ways, although you know, he's not a Foucauldian by any sense of the means, there's a way in which he does sort of point to a space that I think is the contemporary moment, right, where you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't really care if these machines are sentient, right? That's not the question. The question is to what degree uh, uh, human beings are, 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 are changing themselves, envisioning a future kind of human and enacting that kind of plan, right? And is that the best plan for us, right? Right. Um, because it right. seems like right now, I mean, you know, this is a whole other conversation. You know, I just look at the newspaper for the past 15 years and things aren't going so great you know, at least for these kinds of ideals that we hold sort of, you know, have held up, you know, reason and equality and truth, you know, whatever the enlightenment was in its sort of best formation, you know, we can kind of get into, you know, the limits and, you know, all those sort of, you know, jagged ways, imperialism and, I mean, yes, but, you know, I guess I'm an old man, but, I, you know, I, I, you know, you know, there's something about truth and reason that are, I think are valuable <laughs> or yeah. at least aspire to. Yes. Right? And it seems to me that we're living in a world where, like, I, you know, I'm not even pretending to sort of understand it, but whatever that sort of foundation is, is, is slipping away or transitioning into something else. And I think it has a lot to do with the way in which we're constantly looking at our phone, right? You know, and, and I, I say that as a kind of outrageous thing, but every time you swipe your phone, there is a, a neuromatic affirmation, right? The phone recognizes you, imagines you as a neuromatic phenomenon, right? It is because it's built as a neuromatic phenomenon. And you begin to sort of create reality through your encounter with this sort of machine that is imagining your humanity and allows you to imagine your humanity over and over again in a particular register. You know, you do that enough times and among enough people, well, you know, 
that's how that's how that's how construction that's how social constructions are made real. Yes. Right? Yeah. And social constructions are real, right? Like that's <laughs> yes, they are. They can fucking kill you, right? Yes, they can totally yes. kill you. Right? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. Um. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really interesting. Like, um, for people who don't understand uh, social construction, but uh, when I've had those conversations, and a lot of times it's just a lack of research in that area, just to to, to mention the dollar. And then like, oh yeah, that that's real. That matters. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, I mean, that's that's an agreed upon number, right? Like, m like created by multiple forces. Very similar here. Um, go ahead. Do you have a thought? No, no. Or, I was oh, just thinking. I was telling my students, like, why can you go to Taco Bell and get a you know a bean burrito for four dollars? Why you know what is that? What is what is going on there to sort of get them to think about this? The idea that you know that you know. You know, I think this is the hardest sell to scientists, right? Some of the harder scientists that I talk to have no patience for my my commitment to a, a certain sort of non-essentialism uh, about the world, right? The idea that things are real and they have physical effects, um, but I also believe that they're, they don't have to be that real. There could have been another reality, right? We could change this reality, right? And so... And I learned this in grad school from another amazing um, book that I also want to give a shout out, um, Michael Tossig's Mimesis and Alterity, which was this book that I was reading in graduate school among all my colleagues were talking in a buzz about this book. And he has this first few pages where it's kind of called like a prologue or a message to the academy. And it's kind of this nice quippy thing where he's like, of course, everything is a social construction. That's, that's the first principle. Like, some, you know, he's kind of arguing with people who like, write a whole book and at the end like and everything is a social construction right and you're just like you know like that's like well, yeah like that's that's the that's the, that's the thing that gets you into the work then you get to see how it gets constructed then you get into the mechanics of construction how those mechanics have constructed you and it has this sort of you know dare i say it a kind of utopian political project where there is this assumption that if we can get into the brass taxes of how things have been made maybe we can remake them Hopefully better. Hopefully better. Yes. <laughs> but at least, at least, yeah. I mean, you know, at this point, you know, maybe I could see an argument like, well, John, things are going quite well. We don't need to change. Don't rock the boat. Things are going great. Right. And I'm like, you know, yeah, they're, they're sure. wonderful. <laughs> just just you know, wonderful. No matter who uh, I talk to, I don't, that is not a common opinion. I will say that. Like maybe from like a, maybe from a 200 year look at things, people might yeah. argue for that, but not in the last. Like if you look ten years, like it's there's definitely seems to be that kind of dip. Um, yeah, you mentioned a little bit in your book about this, and it seems to kind of ring with what you're talking about with um, with reason and truth in this pursuit. Um, and you know, you mentioned like the the jagged uh, uh, empiricism. Um, I like that term. That's how it uh, you know in the soft, squishy parts of my brain. That's what it feels like. Uh, when we talk about uh, finitude and, and epistemology, um, in some ways, when you look at like the Cartesian project, there's this, this work towards mathematics and certainty. And then uh, you're talking about it's worth aspiring to truth and reason, and we don't want to lose that best formulation of what the Enlightenment project was. Uh, and, you're, and you weren't sure what's going on today and where some of this is coming from. Do you think... Um, there was a realization that we could not escape our finitude. And it's almost, to me, like to, to really make it uh, down to earth, it sometimes feels like we, we've decided to take our ball and go home, you know, uh, to just sour grapes it and be like, well, if I can't reach that and we, I never will, then I'm not even going to try. Do you feel like that's some mm. of what's happening? So on the ground, in terms of this kind of destabilizing of these sort of traditional sort of ways of argumentation and, you know, kind of the, the sort of ideal, the Habermasian public sphere where we can sort of reasonably debate with each other. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, huh, you know, that like that's that, that's almost outside my bailiwick to sort of make a kind of like this is what's happening to the culture. But, you know, I think it, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll sort of sort of take that question. One of the things that the people, a lot of people in my book where I do this kind of gonzo genealogy of the neuroscientist, which includes 
you know, not just a lot of scientists, but, a, you know, very deliberately a lot of people and figures and moments that I think sort of established scientists would be like, they have nothing to do with me. I have nothing to do with Scientology. I have nothing to do with parapsychology. I have nothing to do with phrenology. I have nothing to do with, you know, Emanuel Swedenborg. What is this person saying? Um, you know, because there's something about the book that sort of gets in there, and I think in a lot of ways, this history reminds us that we, we do have a finitude, right? There's a certain kind of ending that happens, and we build, we build upon the bodies and the minds of the dead, right? And there's something about the project in general that I, I noticed, and I, I'm teaching a class right now which has to do with some of this stuff, and we have a, we've had some big conversations about there is this kind of weird desire for immortality, um, a desire for to escape finitude within the neuromatic, right? Um, among, for example, L. Ron Hubbard and the Scientology rituals, right? There's, you know, that's a religion that's doing that. But I also see it among neuro and cognitive scientists where you have an extreme example in the form of like a Ray Kurzweil or those individuals who are really into the notion or the prospect of a kind of moment of singularity where there is this kind of full integration of whatever the human was and whatever the machine was into this new reality where there will be, we will be like gods on some level. But that godlike immortality is dependent upon, you know, a real reduction of ourselves to the neural networks that process information and don't have much room for the body. They don't have much room for, for those spaces in human life that, that do not make sense at the moment and perhaps may never make sense according to a mathematical model. And again, going back to our earlier, I think that's a metaphysical position, right? Because I can see a lot of cognitive neuroscience and computer scientists coming to me like, well, John, you can say anything you want. Our stuff works. It works, right? Do you see that machine? Do you see that sort of, you know, degenerative neural disease that we've come up with a way to explain and also treat and counteract. You know, and I stand, I'm like, sure, right? That's wonderful. And again, I am all for MRIs and I'm all for, <laughs> uh, you know, all for people if they have some issue and they don't want to be that way. And there's some doctor or some machine that can tell you why you're that way and perhaps even give you some guidance about how to move someplace else. The plasticity of the brain and the human is quite real. You know, the problem that I have is when Again, you know, you begin to take, take stuff like religion, which seems, I mean, I understand when, you know, somebody like, well, John, this cup is not a social construction. And you're like, okay, you know, there's, that's a, that's a but religion, hope, <laughs> morale, I mean, these things are obviously social constructions, right? I mean, these, and, and so it's that kind of, that kind of angle that I'm always sort of trying to sort of poke and be like, you know. We, are, we do have bodies that decay, that are messy, that, 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 we have, that, are, that are representative of a certain kind of entropy of, of what reality kind of is, right? And I kind of want to insist that there's maybe some old school existentialist in me, right? You know, just embrace it, right? You'll be better off. You'll be happier. You know, the time you have on earth will be so much more fulfilling um, as if, you know, that you can, if you, if you premise your life on this prospect of escaping, of, of, of getting out of, of, I just think you're going to ask them questions that aren't fully thought through or unpacked, maybe, might be my way to say it. And that, you know, you, you're talking about bodies, you're talking about, um, instead of trying to dig our way out, maybe dig our way in, uh, maybe, mm. is this, would this be an appropriate moment to ask, you mentioned earlier about rituals that dig deeper, about people who want to know more, and that seemed to be, in some ways, uh, I, I wouldn't say opposite, but maybe uh, metaphysically apart from this kind of uh, neuroscientific model. Can you mm. talk a little bit about what you mean by those rituals and what their value is and what they do, what they are? You know, maybe some concrete examples. Well, um, you know, one of the, I think the first thing I would say, you know, in, in terms of keeping with my book, there's little that escapes the sort of neuromatic touch in our contemporary culture in a lot of ways. But I mean, obviously, not everything is encompassed by it. So, you know, there's a chapter in my book that I deal with, you know, for lack of a better term, the sort of weirdos, um, the demimond of the neuromatic, where I have a chapter on parapsychology, Scientology, and the writers um, and artists, William Burroughs and Brian Geisen. 
And I put that chapter in the middle of my book, not as, you know, a kind of alternative to the neuromatic, but for these individuals who worked through it in ways that I think were differently inflected. And so, for example, a ritual that I find quite powerful um, is the ritual of, of writing and artistic creation. Um, and that's something I, you know, have taken a lot from Burroughs. And I deal a lot with he and Brian Geisen and, and another artist named Ian Somerville. Um, basically invented or sort of came up with this thing called the dream machine in the 19, early 1960s. And it was based in part upon the stroboscopic light experiments that were being done by Gray Walter um, in his neurophysiological research, where he would subject subjects to these flashing lights as a way to sort of begin to sort of see how those lights affect brainwaves and to begin to ask questions about how brainwaves are perhaps responding to or even anticipating um, different kinds of flashes of light. And so they come up with this kind of like DIY thing, which is 78 RPM turntable. You put this uh, sort of cylindric sort of cardboard cutout with these holes in it. You put a bright light in the middle. You start spinning it. And you, be, and you, you go up to it and you close your eyes, just like you would in a, a, Walter, a Gray Walter experiment. And, but the purpose was a kind of disassociation. The purpose was in a lot of ways run through the sort of logic of the neuromatic. This dream machine works precisely because your brain does emit electrical currents at a particular kind of frequency. And here's a device that can, in a sense, affect those. And they use it not to, in a sense, achieve a kind of immortality or perhaps even find something out that is going to have a kind of promise of security or any kind of guarantee like that. They do it to, in a sense, destabilize themselves, right? There's a kind of desire to sort of go into a moment where you be, do begin, at least momentarily, to slough off um, perhaps um, ways in which you might um, have known otherwise and perhaps create conditions by which you might know differently. And so that, for me, is a ritual that is quite different um, than a lot of the rituals that I saw in practice among those who were, let's say, practicing the neuromatic. And one of the things that this book, I've been in conversation with a number of different people about this book, and often the conversation turns toward the writing, because I'm very self-conscious about myself as an author in this book, you know, very much sort of talking about myself and talking about the process of writing. And, you know, I'm in a kind of an old school romantic. I believe there's something um, really precious and special um, about a space where you can begin to be, at, I don't want to say alone with your language, but, um, you know, in, in a space where you can begin to sort of work through the way in which language has begun to make you up, right? And I think just getting there for me, I think if you get there, I, I would find it hard to then go out into the world and begin to sort of do these sort of projects that depend upon a vision of the human as at the end of the day, a disembodied, perhaps immortal uh, sort of computational entity. You begin to think about, I mean, we're weird, man. We got weird stuff inside us. Freud told us this. Yes. But we don't teach Freud anymore in psychology. He's wrong. He's obviously wrong. He's wrong. <laughs> I, yeah. I, and that's... Uh... Um, yeah, I was actually, I like to think of myself as an open-minded person. And then I was uh, rebuked. Uh, someone was talking about, I'd read uh, The New Science by uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico. And I was like, this is weird. I don't get it. And he'd got so many things wrong. And someone uh -huh. came along and talked about the fundamental insight was that you could create these analyses of... Um, of the human condition, like like it's the birth of anthropology, and I missed it because I got bogged down in the the wrong details, right? And that's like I, the reason I say this is because that that's Freud all over, right? Like you get bogged down in like I mean I read his uh, essay on the uncanny, and he's like it's about castration. And I'm like it it doesn't always have to be about penises, right? Like <laughs> right? And you're like you look at him like the guy's a little a little obsessed, you know? Um, comments about you know him smoking cigars, that sort of thing, but the uh, to look at that and to recognize that uh, the fact that we are that he was fundamentally right about the subconscious and that we are you know uh, messy uh, and not easily folded into these statistical boxes uh, you know it 
it's almost so basic now. And then we're like, well, we're going to get beyond that. And we're going to find better boxes instead of like recognize what, what the, the truth of what he's saying. Does that track with what yeah, you kind of go there? Yeah, yeah, I think there's also, yeah, there's a tragic, I mean, Freud has no utopian vision. He's like, humans are, are at the end of the day, irrational, animalistic creatures who want to, you know, fuck, kill, and eat each other, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's sort of the vision. And there's no escaping that, right? That's just the human condition, and which, first of all, that just turns most people off. They're like, no, which is really, really interesting, right? I mean... You know, you think about like, you know, the, the kind of um, how non-palpable Freud is in this contemporary moment yeah. with his vision, right? And I often think about it's very similar when I teach Puritanism and I really try to get down into the weeds of like, okay, here's a group of people whose commitment to their version of Christianity was premised on the fact that they could never know their God and the fact that they could never know with a degree of certainty whether they are saved or not. You know, and, and my students are like, what, what is that? Like, that sounds like, I go, yeah, in the beginning of time, God wrote your name down either in the book of life or not, and has nothing to do with you. You have no idea why. And, and they're just like, what is this? You know, like, why would anybody want to join that? And, and I'm always like, there's something, you know, I, you know, I don't pretend to get into the mind of a Puritan, but I'm like, you know, you can imagine there's something, there's something really um, exhilarating uh, uh, about living your life with that imagination of a kind of honesty about the sort of limits of what you can do. And, you know, I think fast forward 400 years, I think in a lot of ways it's, you know, it's kind of the opposite, right? Where, you know, you have a personal relationship with your divinity, right? You, you talk to your divinity, you, you, you know, this 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 would be very foreign to a pure like what that's 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 what are you doing? That's that's not God then. You're just you know that God is overwhelmingly outside. And and so back to Freud. I mean, he and he is not a theologian on any level, but you know the idea that there is a deeper rationality um, at the heart of of reality, which is I mean that's why he was so like, like he gave the lie to the kind of utopian project of arriving at reason, at arriving at truth, at arriving at stability. Like it's, it's a great goal. You should definitely try and have no problem with that, but let's do it with a degree of honesty when we try to do that kind of thing, which is very Jamesian too, right? He talks about the use of, as a pragmatist, right? We use language and we don't believe in it, right? Right? Captain Ahab believed in his language and look what happened to him and everybody who went on that boat with him, right? He believed absolutely in his language. He had some sort of notion that language was a, a kind of, had a certain kind of referential, direct correspondence to the world that we live in. Um, and, you know, look again, look how that turned out. Uh, and, I mean, that just goes back to your experience in the, uh, and I always love these kinds of accounts because um, we are, most people don't realize how messy the scientific process is. And mm-hmm. so, as soon as you start looking at the, uh, an actual survey and not the results of the survey, it's like 50% of people believe this, right? And that seems yeah. just like this hard, cold fact. And we just, we know it. We know it with certainty. And then I'm looking at, I'm like, the, the questions you're being asked about religion. And like, those are, those are messy, messy questions, right? And you, you can't just like fold this into like the, this certainty. I mean, it does get folded into the certainty, but it's an unwarranted certainty. And it's, a, but it's a certainty that, 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 that has the effect of certain, it's an uncertainty effect, right? <laughs> yes, it's like yes. it appears <laughs> real as the trees outside your, you know, your window, right? Um, because it is these layered things where there are these, you know, in that, sur- in the process you're talking about in the prologue, you know, I'm, I'm subject to all manner of tests. It ends with the MRI, the kind of granddaddy of, you know, measurement of my brain, blood in my brain. But it's, but it's preceded by a number of different kinds of just basic sort of psychological tests of magical ideation scale, the post-critical belief scale, you know, a spiritual biography is taken of me and put through a kind of, you know, language recognition program to sort of measure my capacities for religious and or secular cognition. And it, and it, and it really is neat, right? It's neat, but its neatness is premised upon a, a certain kind of historical outcome that that, for example, in the end of the 20th century, early 21st, most people, I would say, 
this is a wager. But I think if you wait, and my, this is true in my classes. My students arrive in class, you know, not necessarily invested in religion or against religion, but whatever religion is, it has to do with belief, right? It has to do with your cognitive assent to certain doctrines, right? And this is not surprising. This is what the Supreme Court believes. This is built into our constitution. But let us be truthful and be like, this is an incredibly Protestant, right, formulation, right, that has a history. That is not the only way to do it, right? And so when I was in that laboratory, I really felt like this kind of unexamined sort of notion that religion is real and we've figured out what it is. And now we know what religion is. We're going to find where that religion is in your brain, right? Which for me is just like, you know, I think, it, and when we go to that point as a scholar of religion who really likes to think about the problem of religion or thinking about those who have talked about religion, this seems to um, end the conversation on some level, right? That the idea that we will, in fact, one day find, you know, everything we need to know and it's going to be mapped onto the brain and won't life be lovely then? <laughs> Then be obviously we'll be able to fix everything. Um, oh yeah. yeah, I mean fix ourselves. <laughs> Don't you want to fix yourself? Yeah. I mean, think of all those moments in your day. Like, why am I doing this? Why do I do this? This is not good for me. Why did I choose that? Why am I hanging out with this person? I mean, you know, again. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no fixing it, right? There's there's recognition, right? There's humility. There's these other sort of values that I think can be derived from this condition that we have that don't necessarily lead into this sort of desperate attempt to overcome those, those moments or issues or a predicament that promises no certainty, right? Um, I grew up uh, independent fundamental Baptist. So, okay. so when you talk about assenting to doctrines, very, yes. very familiar. <laughs> no oh, longer yeah. independent fundamental Baptist. Um, uh, and I, I grew up I have, Northern Baptist, Northern Baptist in Ohio. And I talk about, I talk about that in my book a little bit in terms of my grandmother. I was raised in part by my grandmother who was quite religious and, and, uh, the book is dedicated to her, Dorothy Flay. And, um, she under, I mean, she was a really passionate sort of premillennial, um, evangelical, um, in so many ways where talk of the rapture and the end of the world was quite prevalent in my household. And um, also, though, she, you know, suffered from clinical depression, you know, undiagnosed, I think, in that term. But, you know, basically was hauled in for electric shock therapy in the early 1960s. And, um, you know, I'm not sure it helped her, you know, in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, but, you know, that, that sort of, that, that notion of, you know, the doctrine. I remember, like, every first of every month during communion... You know, we would read this sort of statement of faith, right? And, you know, I'd read it, re I'd read it religiously, as it were, um, <laughs> until I was about 14 or 15, went to high school, and, and there was this line in it. It was like, you know, I will not partake in the sale and use of alcohol as a beverage, right? And, you know, everybody is saying this. And I'm like, oh, man, I went to that party last week and I had a beer. And I remember that was a moment where... I'd be beside my grandmother and I'd be reading everything else. You know, I won't yep. kill anybody and I'll help everybody and all that kind of thing. And then we get to this line. I'm like, I would just sort of like not say anything you know? <laughs> as if I could opt out. You know, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to lie to God. I'm right. not going to, but I was like kind of my own reformer. At, yeah. You know, at yeah, 15, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll take a little bit of that. I like this whole other thing, but I don't know about that. Oh man. Um, yeah, and I think the thread through all this that I appreciate is um, the you call it a particular history, right? And so even as we're talking about this, is very particular. Um, when you talk about uh, the rapture, right? Like my granddaddy, which you want to talk about particular history. My granddaddy who lived in Ocala, Florida, Central Florida. Right? I mean, any day now, those trumpets are going to sound. You know, that was <laughs> that was a common common refrain. Um, I, and I, I think it's interesting that in our society, uh, most people don't even realize it's the kind of the, you know, uh, that common metaphor of the water that the fish swim in. When we talk about this, you know, you're talking about the Supreme Court and this Protestant uh, ascent to doctrines, right? 
And even the Catholics, even the Catholics yes. are assenting. You know, it's like, no, it's like, yeah. you know, that's the thing. It's not about Protestant fits. It's, it's built into our language, right? Yeah. You know, um, um, what, what would be an example um, of a, a different model of belief or this different model of religiosity? Well, how about religion is about um, um, community. Religion is about, you know, you know, bodies together in space. Ritual is about those moments of encounter of of our our sort of messy humanity together right um or perhaps you know another i'm talking out loud here maybe a model of religion that could be um uh basically committed to sort of uh divesting oneself of any belief right you know uh, of sort of going into that sort of you know performance art space where nothing is true and everything is permitted i don't know um but there's ways in which this sort of commitment uh to belief and cognition it's also related to a certain understanding of language, right? That that, that, that language can, in, in a sense, encompass um, a, a certain kind of doctrine, and you can, in a sense, participate in this language as a vehicle by which you can um, commune with your God, um, right? There's, there's all different kinds of manners, right? And I've been taken, I was trained in part by um, continental philosopher uh, Tom Carlson, and, uh, who was a student of Mark Taylor, you know, not analytic philosophers, but I think, you know, one of the funny things I always tell that I didn't realize there was such a thing as analytical philosophy until I got out of graduate school. <laughs> I just thought I was doing philosophy and, you know, this is what we did and, you know, read Heidegger and do this yeah. kind of like aporias and the limits of language. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then I got like, who are these guys? These guys are like mathematicians. Who, oh, yeah. Like, you know, like, you know, like, this is not what I'm doing. And so I think that's a nice little divide there, right? What is the final objective of an analytical philosopher? In general, it's just sort of to nail down a certain kind of proposition. And not just to do it in language, but then, you know, sort of trot out some equations and some logical sort of, you know, that, that's, that's wonderful. But, a, a, you know, a kind of, you know, you read somebody like a, a Derrida or, or somebody who is sort of, the, the outcome is different, right? It's moving you in a different space where you begin to sort of, I don't know, I always talk about it as a, not a divorce, but a kind of just, you begin to, you don't lose your language absolutely, but you begin to, there's room, something happens between you and the words you're using, right? Um, that I find a quite a valuable practice. And so you want a ritual, I'll give you a ritual for all the listeners out there. If you want to have a, a, a religious experience that has nothing to do with belief, okay, go to your bathroom mirror in the morning when you wake up, or maybe wait before you go to bed. Stare in the mirror. See, look at yourself. See yourself. And this is an old William Burroughs trick, and this is not mine, but it's a good one. Um, look in the mirror, stare at yourself, and begin to say your name over and over and over again while staring at the mirror at yourself, right? At some point in that process, something's going to happen um, to this kind of tight triangle between the, a, a literal sort of optical vision of yourself, um, your experience of yourself, and the language that denotes yourself. There is going to be a, at least a rupture or at least a sort of shakiness, right? And I, I, you know, I think this is, how about that for a practice, right? Yeah. How about that for a practice? You know, I, it's funny, even as you say that, I think, um, and there's even like a, a built-in safeguarding mechanism where the kind of person who rejects what you're saying would start to feel that process work and uh, would kind of self-police and even maybe stop and just say, oh, this is weird and it doesn't work, right? Before they get to that point. Um, yeah. And it's a lot of it is the willingness to push through and to experience this and the, the openness. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, if that's well, it does make yeah. sense, right? You know, and it, and it does come down like, you know, some of my students are like, you know, particularly in this moment, I teach at a small liberal arts college. And, you know, you would think that this was uh, the last bastion of a certain kind of like, oh, like we're going to read like Kant on the lawn and, you know, have these large, you know, conversations. <laughs> and, you know, there's many students who still want to do that. But, you know, a lot of students here at FNM, but other places are like, I need to be taking your class. I need to learn something. I need to learn something that's going to be applicable into my internship this summer, which then I'll get a good rec and I'll do this. And it's just kind of caught up in this sort of space. And, uh, you know, I often, you know, it's often premised, right? The promise of find yourself, find your voice, find who you are. And I understand that, right? You know, you're 18 years old and 
You know, there's a certain <laughs> anchor that you need, right? I totally get that. But there's also something about this culture that is really, really invested in you finding yourself and finding yourself in a very particular way. Um, and to the point where that finding and that self can be, in a sense, ge perpetual generators of capital, right? My day the, job you know? is as a digital marketer. And so, like, I mean, yeah. what I mean is like, how do you find yourself? Well, it needs to fit into a branding package. Once you have that unique, personal, sale, you know, sellable branding package, that is your voice. You know, I mean, that's, yes. unfortunately, it's kind of what I do for a living. We won't talk about that. But um, no. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, I, it's, so I, I so know yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of what and we talked quite a bit about the Neuromatic Project kind of being disembodied, if I'm tracking with you. Right. Like this or trying to be it disembodied. Has a, it has a it has a, a push. Right. And so, you know, one of the things about the book, I'm trying to always embody it. I'm always yes. trying to. To sort of like that opening chapter is incredibly confessional. You know, I'm telling stories about myself and my grandmother and revealing details about me that you could judge me, right? You could, you could judge me as a reader and be like, I don't know about this guy, right? But there's something about that particularity that I put up against this kind of incredibly massive universalizing project to yes. be like, this is religion and this is your brain. And I'm like, no, ma'am. Like there's something about you're missing something. You're missing something. This picture it does not encompass it, right? And I find, I always find myself like, you know, a romantic plea, you know, I don't think I'm a crass romantic, but I do want to keep at least it open for the possibility of a kind of romanticism to be possible. Because I find the other, I find the other party very boring. I don't want to go to that party, right? Yeah, Those maybe instead of a, a crass, about. instead of a crass romantic, you're a carnal romantic, you know, like just maybe like- a carnal <laughs> romantic, right? Yeah. Yes. No. And that's like, you know, and that's the kind of thing, like, you know, what I love about, I mean, there's a huge section of my book on Aline Garrett, a famous international parapsychologist in the mid-20th century, um, founder of the Parapsychological um, Research Foundation. And, you know, she's really awesome because she's really sort of, you know, doing her sort of, you know, communicating with different kinds of entities in the past and, you know, doing seances and whatnot. And she's doing it according to these, like, language of information theory and things like that. But she's also really weirdly always sort of mentioning and name checking the physical conditions under which she's doing it and her body. And there's something to, you know, I kind of put that out there, not again, as an alternative to be like, this is a different trajectory outside, but it just cuts slightly differently from, you know, some of the more sort of straightforward, like, you know what, we are going to um, arrive at a space where we can understand you completely and fully um, as, a, as a kind of neural processing entity. Mm. Uh, Dr. Modern, it has been absolutely awesome to have you on. Is there, uh, not that you should summarize all of this because it is both phenomenal and huge, um, <laughs> uh, but is there, uh, if you could give a, a single takeaway for our audience, something for them to um, carry away um, from this conversation, what would it be? I would say my quick thing is like, um, know your history. Mm. Know your history. Know your history. And also a shout out to, you mentioned at the beginning, the project I'm working on now, which is sort of most exciting to me, which sort of takes these ideas in different directions, but also includes over 100 other collaborators, artists, and other scholars and musicians. It's called Machines in Between. And it's a, an experimental audio series that we're about halfway through it. Um, and it's an it's a, it's a experimental audio series that sort of thinks deeply um, about our sort of engagement with technology and it's premised upon the on the question of what what do you love when you love your machine which your readers or your listeners might recognize as a kind of take on augustinian uh a kind of theological inquiry what do you love when you love your machine hmm. i'm not gonna lie i actually had down here to ask about it and i looked down at the time and i was like that is not a five-minute conversation so no, Mayor, no. Yes, yeah, I would this, love to. Yeah. We have great stuff. I mean, people, it's an experimental thing, and it's, it, it is this thing where, you know, trying to push, as we say, the boundaries of scholarly inquiry. Mm -hmm. We're trying to be as smart as we are any place else, but to do it in a way that does have a lot of fun and also sort of, you know, hopefully appeals to people who don't necessarily, you know, 
don't have PhDs, right? You know, who are just interested people and interesting people. So I wanted to call it, it out. interdisciplinary. And then I realized it's broader even than that because it's outside the academic world. And that's, uh, I think, a wonderful thing. Um, so, uh, Dr. Modern, again, uh, thank you so much. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, PJ. 